Hello, all, and welcome to the next episode of the Horror Countdown Podcast. I'm your host, Donna Nelly, and with me tonight is a very special guest. I have author David O'Hanlon. Hey, Don. Good to be on. Ah, thank you for uh, joining me tonight. So um, we decided to pick uh, for tonight's episode 10 horror films you may have missed. So uh, any uh, particular reason for uh, this topic? Uh, you know, I see those lists all the time online, and it's always like cult classics or, you know, kind of newer stuff that's gotten a lot of hype, you know, like Autopsy of Jane Doe, definitely one people should see, but at the same time, it got a lot of uh, social media push, it got a lot of talk at the festivals and from the genre magazines, uh, the websites, so there's a lot of those that come out every year, though, that just kind of get overlooked, and another thing is, to me, the 80s get all the love. Like, that's where all of our great franchises came from. So we always talk about 80s horror. But for me, the 90s was, like, the best time for, like, pure entertainment in horror. Uh, just because you had the premium channels were coming out. TVs were more affordable than ever. VCRs were more affordable than ever. So you had more directed video. And everybody was rushing to get material out. And it was just kind of like giving the nuts the keys to the asylum. So you got movies in the 90s that will never fly again. Like, it's just, you can't pull them off. So I think there's a lot of great stuff out there that just kind of got overlooked. Uh, and the market has been oversaturated at times, too. Uh, and also, uh, my girlfriend has never seen horror movies before. She's very sheltered-like. And she got me thinking about it. If you're bringing somebody into the horror genre, or you're into the horror genre itself, and you start with something like Seven or the Hannibal Lecter stuff, and then go back to Psycho, like, it just doesn't work as well for you. So I think you're more likely to go in seeing those cult classics than you are to go in seeing the big groundbreaking films of the 60s or 70s or even 80s. Um, if there's just been something that's, more recent you know if you like hostile and saw you're probably not going to enjoy things like 2000 maniacs or the other Herschel Gordon lewis films even though they're the ones that made that possible so i feel like a lot of times those lists are kind of you know biased towards the idea that you know well i've been watching horror for 20 years and i've never seen this film as opposed to you know these are people that have been doing it forever and they're introducing people to films so I, I just feel like there's a lot that gets missed and it's a good idea to kind of, you know, share some of these rarer films with people when you can. All right. Well, uh, it's, uh, I mean, I can't agree more. I'm always down to expose people to new stuff just because, you know, like you said, the idea that you, there's so much that comes out, everything, you can kind of get a sense of what's going to get hyped and what's going to not be just by seeing, you know, your posts on social media, what, gets talked about in Fangoria or Bloody Disgusting or Dread Central and then it's always like you know that one fringe lunatic that you have that just pops up every now and then who's claiming this is like the best film of the year but nobody knows about it because you know he's only followed by four or five of you so his posts don't get seen but then you know three or four years later by the time you finally get around to it it's like holy crap he was right right definitely yeah I, I, I've gotten I've been a <clears throat> I've seen that happen a couple of times where I've managed to see something and then he pops in. It's like, I was raving about this three years ago. Nobody knows about it. And yeah, um, I'm a big fan of doing stuff like this. So yeah, this was a uh, fun topic and a fun list to come up with. So um, was there anything that you used for um, judging your list or how you came about uh, it? 
about half of the list was ones that I loved when they first came out and have stuck with me for years. Um, if you read my stuff, you, you see that it's a lot of entertainment first. Uh, it's very, you know, Tales from the Crypt kind of, or it's not meant to, you know, get you thinking. It's get you to stop thinking and just have some fun for a change. If you want to be depressed, that's what social media is for. If you want to be scared, that's what the news is for. So I think that horror should always be fun. It was my escape from a lot of bad stuff. Um, so there's a lot of those, uh, especially 90s films that really kind of took me away from what I was dealing with. And I kind of focused on that for about half the list. And also every October, I do my 31 for 31. And it's not entirely different for what I do every day or every month. But this month, uh, this year, I decided to challenge myself and only watch 31 films I'd never seen before. And I came across a few that I really dug and some that I really hated. But I also came across a couple of really new ones that I, I just haven't been hearing about. So I wanted to get them out there and I've got them on my list and I've got a few other ones on there. So. All right. Well, it's, uh, sounds interesting. I kind of went a similar approach. Um, not necessarily films that I'm very strongly attached to, but films I really like that I don't hear a lot about stuff that, you know, maybe it pops up every two or three times over the course of like a year or something like that as like, you know, first time watch, why didn't I know about this before kind of a thing. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, sort of where I took it, but, um, for starting, let's, uh, start in, let's, uh, hear your number 10. So my number 10 is actually only six months old. Um, it's been kind of a festival darling. It's won over 40 awards. There were 30 nominations and I haven't heard about it any damn where. Uh, it was called Girl Next. And I'm not even sure how I ended up watching this. Like, I think it just started auto-playing on Tubi or something. Um, it's definitely not the kind of film that I would normally watch based off of its description. It's uh, about sex trafficking. So it's a very uh, dark kind of film. It's uh, a lot of uh, trigger warning stuff on that one but the way it's done is so different from other films that I've seen like this uh, the director's done a few indie stuff uh, indie films but again he's not really uh, super huge uh, Zeph Daniel though actually wrote it and he kind of went MIA for the last 20 years he used to write under a different name and he wrote uh, Society and Writer Reanimator so if you're familiar with those, you kind of got an idea for how bad shit this movie can get, <laughs> but then multiply it by like 11 because it just goes way out there. Uh, it's just, you're never really sure what you're watching. There's lots of hallucinations, there's mind control, and it all starts playing together so you're really not ever sure what you're seeing. So I really dug that. Um, I've heard they're working on a sequel uh, from the director, so I'm really excited to see if that comes to fruition. Uh, it's just it's so weird it's definitely worth checking out just for the chance to say you've seen it because you'll never see anything else like it it's so out there yeah i've never heard of this so i'm definitely intrigued because it sounds kind of interesting uh i mean i'm a huge fan of society and bright of reanimator uh so yeah that's uh, a great selling point i'm kind of int intrigued about that one i'll keep an yeah, eye out for it for sure I said, I don't know how I got to that one, but I was really glad that I did afterwards. Like I said, it's kind of dark, hard to watch at times, but the acting is so fantastic. The visual effects are not the best, but they also represent kind of like the mind being messed with. So it kind of works that they're a little bit cheesier. Hmm. 
All right. Well, that sounds interesting. Yeah, like I said, I'll definitely keep an eye out for it because I haven't heard of it. So, all right. Uh, your number nine. My number nine is actually an old movie, but it was a first time watch for me. And it'd be a first time watch for most people because it's also been a lost movie uh, for over 20 years. This is Mike Mendez's first film, 1996 Killers. Uh, and, you know, there's like 200 movies called Killers, so. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, if you're just going to sell me on that title, I'm going to need a little more. <laughs> it's called The Killers, so kind of got to narrow it down with the date. Uh, this was Mike Mendez's first film. Uh, I'm a big fan of his work. He always does films that are really good, but never quite great, though. Uh, so I'm always hoping to find that one. Apparently, it was his first film, because that one was, it was just fantastic. Um, this came out in 96, 97, and very quiet direct-to-video release. Afterwards, it was out of print. And if you didn't see it on VHS back in the late 90s, early 2000s, you just didn't see it. Uh, it was lost until about 20, 2019. Somebody found it, restored it, it hit the streaming services, and hopefully we'll soon hit Blu-ray. But I started this as background noise just based on the cover image. And I got to listen to the dialogue in the background. I was like, wait a second, what the hell am I watching? And backed it up to the beginning and just enthralled with this film the whole way through. It's kind of based off of the Menendez brothers. And that's kind of where you think it's going from the opening scenes. And then it just kind of goes further and further down this rabbit hole afterwards with the Psycho brothers escaping from prison. They go to settle a grudge, end up at this... Uh, pretty normal, super, you know, chill, family-friendly household. And it turns out that they're all, like, fans of the two killers, and except for the dad. And then you start kind of getting further into it, and I don't want to give anything away, but you don't see anything that happens to this movie coming. Uh, there's some shoddy dialogue at times where they have, you know, they didn't fact-check something, or there's a continuity error. But it's just little tiny things that really don't take away from the film. They're just things that, as a writer, I caught and zeroed in on right away. Uh, but overall, this is just an insanely fun uh, kind of post-natural-born killers horror thriller that's not really in any subgenre. It's just kind of its own thing. Ah, that sounds cool. Um, yeah. Um selling me on uh, kind of a natural born thrillers connection that's a that's pretty cool um i'm definitely gonna have to check that out because yeah um i mean like i said earlier if you're going off of the title i have no idea which version i'm watching so uh yeah th this sounds pretty cool i'm uh, definitely intrigued by it yeah it was, it was a lot of fun uh, my number eight is another new one uh this one's only been out for nine months and it's gotten less fanfare than girl next even it's uh called butchers uh, again, really simplistic title that could easily be overlooked. Um, what I have tracked down on this, it seems like mainstream critics just kind of are throwing it off to the side. It's just another, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's just another Wolf Creek, whatever. But then, like, the horror fans are actually kind of getting behind it. But, again, it's the, it's the websites they're talking about. It. It's not getting any, like, mainstream love anywhere. So, uh it is just really absurd movie. It's kind of set in the late nineties. It's not a fun movie, really. It's kind of very dark, um, but it's just so well made. Like everybody's performance is fantastic in it. Um, we have you know a lot of the cliches and stuff, but they kind of play against them 
So it, it, another thing I love about it is it takes place during the day. You know, like most of these, you know, we're going to shoot it. It's low budget. Let's do it at night so we don't have to spend the money on the lighting or whatever. And everything's kind of like off in the grain. You can't really tell what's going on. Saves money on the special effects. But no, they put everything right out of the daylight for you. And to me, that makes this a lot scarier because it's like these guys don't just come out at night. Uh, it's like I said, in the late 90s, it's a group of friends. Their car breaks down, of course. And they find themselves at the mercy of these two redneck brothers. And there was some really just cool stuff in the making of it too. Uh, but Simon Phillips is actually a pretty accomplished indie actor. He did, uh, oh, what was it called now? It's a killer Santa Claus movie that came out a few years ago. I cannot remember the name of it now, but it wasn't anything special. It was fun, but he's a, he's pretty accomplished for, you know, a British uh, indie actor. And he's playing this, down home, like South Carolina redneck, basically. And he's, uh, they do so much with his dialogue where you're seeing that he's highly educated, but he's educated without having ever been in schools because he can quote Shakespeare, but he messes up little sentence structure things that kind of show you that it's not a formal education that he has. And I think it's just that those little nuances throughout that make it really creepy and realistic and really make him stand out so it's a, a very well done film overall even though it's it does play to some of the tropes and it does play to some of those old uh cliches there's more you see a lot of homage in it yeah i think i've seen this and i i do agree it, i liked it more than i thought i would um i i think uh, some of the cliches may have gotten to me and i wasn't as high I'm not probably as high on it as you are, but uh, it, it, it is better than what you would think. It's not that bad of a film. So uh, you're number seven? Number seven, I was torn um, between a lot of films starring the same actor, uh, but I would ended up narrowing it down to late phases from 2014. And this one's starting to get a little bit of traction just because there aren't that many great werewolf movies out there. Uh, but I absolutely love Nick DeMisi. He's a great actor, and I was torn between this and Mulberry Street and Stakeland, but I feel like this is the one that kind of gets the least amount of love. Um, and as much as I like DeMisi for his acting, it's his writing that I really enjoy. He wrote Cold in July, and he writes Happen Leonard, which is like my favorite TV show, and sucks that they finally canceled it. Um, but it's just the werewolf itself doesn't look that great. Uh, but the transformation is just amazing. Uh, and also, I think I kind of see, like, after I, like, the first time I saw the world, I was just like, oh, my God, that's horrible. Uh, it was like, you know, some kind of hobgoblin on steroids. But after I got to looking at it more, it's almost like, whereas normally you saw wolf uh, features attached to the person, this is more like a wolf with, like, people features like it has more humanistic cheekbones and stuff and it has kind of this human look like the wolf is taking precedent over the rest of it so i really dug that uh the more i've watched the films i think i've watched it like four or five times now and each time i can appreciate the wolf design a little bit more even though it's still kind of grates on my nerves but it's just a really well acted film with a great transformation the father-son dynamic uh, just does so much for the character it could have been a very stale uh, storyline, you know, just werewolf at a nursing home eating old people, you know, or, you know, something more kind of tongue in cheek and comedic like Bubba Hotep. But they 
when the, the actually I feel has like some kind of anchor to the real world and it's more grounded. Yeah, um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of this as well. Um, I, I definitely agree. I, it sounds it's better than what it sounds like if you were just to describe it. Um, I, I definitely agree. It's one of my favorite transformation sequences. Um, I'm not a fan of the design like you are, but yeah, um, I, I definitely agree. This is, it did make my list because I've seen, like you said, a little bit more traction to it recently, but I, I definitely agree. This is a fun time and it's definitely one that I think a lot of um, werewolves or even creature fans would, pro would probably dig. It's yeah, it's a great one. I, I really like that. So my number six, I went with another werewolf movie, but this one's a little bit different. It's a lot different. Oh, 93's Full Eclipse. Uh, this was an HBO original. Um, it did get some like minor theatrical release, but for the most part, it was on HBO or VHS where you didn't see it. Um, so it, it was easy to miss. There's Anthony Hickox, the director, you know, from Waxworks and Hellraiser 3, which is my favorite of the franchise, as cheesy as it is. Uh, you have Mario Van Peebles. You have Bruce Payne, who is always an amazing villain. You can put him in the crappiest movie. He's going to escalate every scene he's in, though. Uh, and it had wonderful writers. Uh, I did not actually know this until I was going through, kind of just making some random notes for it. But I knew one of the writers was Richard Matheson's son, the writer of I Am Legend. I did not know the other one was Michael Reeves who wrote for pretty much every awesome cartoon from like the 80s to the 90s. He did the Batman animated series, Ninja Turtles, three different series for Masters of the Universe, like Gargoyles. And reading that like made the movie make so much more sense to me because you could totally see that 19, you know, 80s, 1990s Saturday morning cartoon excitement and fun in this movie. Uh, it's about cops that are given a drug to give them werewolf-like property or uh, qualities. Uh, of course, their leader is Adam Garrow, which is French for wolf, you know, because he's very uh, subtle like that, uh, played by Bruce Payne. And he recruits all these cops that have lost partners and have issues to go out and do what the rest of the cops can't do. So he gives them this drug and they start sprouting claws and their faces kind of wolf up a little bit. They almost have like this Wolverine-like quality. Uh, and you're watching it at the beginning and it's just this straight up John Woo action film is what it looks like. It's jumping through the air, double gunning, you know, exactly what you expect from a low budget action movie in 1993. And then all of a sudden, werewolves. And they just kind of play to it in a different direction. And then you start kind of getting a little bit more information and finding out where this drug is coming from and how, they, how they're how they getting their powers from it and stuff like that. Uh, it's just a really well-acted film. Uh, everybody does an amazing job in it. Uh, Patsy Kinsett is uh, one of the cops and uh, said Bruce Payne, you got Mario Lynn Peebles. It's just a, a really well-acted, really fun film. Uh, it's definitely one where you take your brain out, set it in the seat beside you and just enjoy it though. Nice. Yeah. Um, it's been on my list for a while. Um, I, I've been trying to track it down because I, 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 it sounds interesting, but uh, yeah, I haven't gotten to it yet. So uh, I'm definitely, I'd love to check that one out sometime. I had, like, I had always remembered it. I had it on VHS uh, years and years ago. And 
I happened to walk into a used video store here in town and it was sitting face out on the shelf of all things. And I was like across the room, zeroed in on it. It's like, I'm getting it. I don't care how much it is. And ended up with it in my collection for like eight bucks. So super excited to find that one. It was just kind of one of those oddball finds that happens every once in a while. Nice. All right. Uh, number five. Number five. I went with 2003's Willard. Uh, I saw the original when I was a little kid. I cannot remember anything about it, but I picked this one up. I hadn't even heard of it. It released in theaters at the same time as Dreamcatcher and The Day the Earth Stood Still. So a movie with Kristen Glover talking to rats just really didn't hold up to those. And it was very quickly out of the theaters and kind of forgotten about. Um, and so there's a used video store here that does uh, buy two, get one free. So I'll always pick up a couple at one and then I'll pick up one that I've never heard of or one that I haven't seen in a long time. I want to give a second viewing to. And I found this one. I like Crispin Glover. So I started giving it a try and it was definitely worth it. It's very creepy, very atmospheric. Um, he, he's the villain, but you feel so sorry for him. At the same time, he's the hero. Um, it's just a really cool movie. And they actually used real rats, which was awesome. They had uh, over 500 of them that specially trained for their task in the movie so they could actually uh, get the rats to perform whatever Willard needed them to. And then they would have to corral all the rats again, throw them back in their cages, bring out the next set for uh, the next stunt. But uh, it's really cool. They had stunt rats in it. Yeah, um, it, it's pretty fun. Um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but uh, I, I did remember liking it. I did like a lot of the stunt work with the rats, uh, making them practical. Um, I, I, I may not be as high on it as you are, but uh, it, it's a lot better than I thought it would be. And I, it, it's not one that I'd, I think negatively about. Um, it, was, it wasn't bad. I, I did enjoy it. So uh, number four. Number four, this was a hard one. I scratched out like seven other number fours for this one, but I finally decided on one that's actually been a hazard for me to track down. It's uh, Cemetery Man, 1994. Uh, it's one of those that, you know, you can find it, you know, uploaded on YouTube every once in a while, but it's just kind of disappeared. Uh, it was released direct video in the States back in 96. Uh, it's an Italian-made movie. Uh, it's zombie horror philosophy comedy almost eroticism just all in a big ball so like, the first time i saw it i think it was uh 12 or 13 and i was kind of just distracted by the fact there was boobs um but then like i watched it again and i didn't really appreciate it as much because like i said it is more philosophical at times and some of the comedy is much drier and uh satirical uh, then it's like, you know, got a little bit older. I watched it, you know, probably 19, 20 years old. I started kind of getting some of it and kind of understanding it a little bit better. And it's one of those that I go back when I can and watch it. And each time I like it a little bit more, uh, it's easy to see why it's a, got a cult following. I think like once you kind of get into it and it's one of those, you have to actually sit down with the intention of watching it though. And once you do, I think it's kind of, it's over the top, you know, dead alive style, but at the same time, it's got that serious edge to it, which kind of uh, makes it an oddball because you, know, you kind of want to laugh at it and you kind of want to feel bad about it. And at the same time, you're just kind of enjoying the 
the whole ride. And it's just a very interesting movie. Yeah, uh, I, I'm a fan of it as well. Um, like you, the first few times, it wasn't that big of an, it didn't make, leave that big of an impression. Um, I, I Like I said, it's a little too philosophical for most tastes, but it's one that I think you have to, you have to have a little bit more experience and exposure to get it because of those philosophical leanings. So I think once you have that, I think it kind of plays a lot better. So um, yeah, uh, a lot of the, you know, sleazier elements were a lot more attractive on first viewing um, outside of the philosophical elements, but uh, yeah, it's a lot, it's a great pick. Uh, I'm I'm a fan of it and I, it's one that I'm glad to see gets recognition when it gets brought up. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so that one was one I, I've been trying to find a copy for a while now. I just have to kind of settle for finding it on YouTube every so often. Like it'll get taken down and somebody else put it back up. But <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I think there's only been a legitimate DVD release. I don't think there's an actual blue of it yet. No, as far as I've been able to find, there's no blue and the DVD's been out of print for a while now. Yeah. So. Uh, that puts us in number three. And this one. Honestly, probably I should have flipped it with my number one, but I enjoy my number one more. So I went with number three as 2001 Session 9. Um, this one just kind of disappeared. Like, it came out kind of quietly. I loved it the first time I saw it. Um, I moved away from where I was, though. We had this little bitty video store. I don't even think it had a name. I think it just said Video Rental on the side. And that's where I picked it up at. Loved it. I moved to Houston and Blockbuster didn't happen. And it's way too much trouble to drive through Houston to go find a movie. So I wasn't going to go around to the other locations. Uh, but then every so often I'll meet somebody who's like, oh yeah, scariest movie I've ever seen, Session 9. And then I don't hear about it from anybody else again. You know, it's like one of those that people that have seen it, love it. People, everybody else has never even heard of it. It's like there's no middle ground on it, it seems like. Uh, I thought it was just a really well done movie. It's very psychological. It's kind of realistic at points where even if you're kind of skeptical towards, you know, the idea of like supernatural phenomena, there's still enough going on that's realistic that you're kind of like, well, maybe, you know, this is, you know, what's going on instead. And it still has a way to get to you and kind of get our skin, uh, the scoring and the use of sound effects was very well done to create atmosphere and they filmed it in Danvers Asylum, which is pretty damn creepy on its own. So it had a lot going for it in terms of just being nasty and terrifying just in its setting and its atmosphere and, you know, solid acting throughout too. So I think that that really helped carry it. Uh, and then, you know, recently like 2016, it got a blue release and started kind of hitting the streaming services. So now I think it's starting to get a little bit of love now that it's more readily available. But for like 20 years, you know, it just kind of went away and nobody heard about it. Uh, so it was kind of fun seeing it getting a little bit of traction, but I'd definitely love to see it getting the recognition it deserves. Like to me, if you're in that, you know, born in 95 or later crowd, like this is your shining basically. Like I think when you watch, you know, Jack Nicholson's shining, you can still appreciate it, but it doesn't have the same creep out effect that it had for people that grew up in the 70s and 80s watching it. Uh, so I think this one does a lot of the same things uh, for a more uh, modern crowd. You know, the cinematography is a little bit crisper. The 
sound and the direction is just a little bit more post 90s kind of polish to it that I think kind of gets to the younger crowd a little bit easier. Yeah, um, when I first saw it, uh, I didn't like it at all. I thought it was just boring and drab and dull and not that interesting. But I, I came around to it a couple of years um, a couple of years ago, and I, I I was impressed with it. It was a lot more chilling than I gave it credit for. Um, the psychological aspects are incredibly well handled. It's one of the few times it's at, it, you know it, there's more than a few times where it just like gets under your skin and just like really starts giving you goosebumps and chills and i i can't say enough about the location it's just creepy as hell and yeah it, yeah it, it's amazing and yeah uh it i i came around to it and i'm really glad i did because it's a lot of, it's a lot better than i i gave it credit for when i first saw it because I, I thought it was terrible i thought it was just boring and dull and uh, yeah um i definitely one that i i gave a second chance to and i'm glad i did so it was close to my list. Um, I ended up as an honorable mention just because, like you said, those that have seen it are like really, really like praising it. But if you haven't seen it, nobody knows about it. Yeah. So that was kind of like one of the things where it's kind of like uh, it was. It, it ended up on my honorable mentions because of that. But yeah, that's a great one. My um, number two, I went with 1995's Castle Freak. This one just got a remake, so I'm hoping that will steer some traffic towards the original. Uh, the remake's actually pretty solid. It's not the best at all. Like some of the acting is atrocious, but it is a really uh, fun film. And I thought, like especially the little tie-ins uh, to the other Lovecraft stuff was pretty cool. Um, this one was the movie that shouldn't have happened. Basically, it was given very little press. This was uh, a full moon feature. Um, and it was right at the end of their Paramount deal. So they were in a, a lot of trouble. They've been getting money and spending way over budget. Uh, they weren't keeping very good books. So they were going way over budget on other movies. And by the time Paramount got a new head, they were just kind of like, okay, so where is all the money we're giving you? And Charles Band didn't keep very good books. So he couldn't account for it either. And they took uh, some of the money that was meant for a movie Paramount wanted them to make and instead decided to make Castle Freak. So Stuart Gordon, of course, you know, reanimator and from beyond, he takes $500,000, flies to Charles Band's personal castle in Italy and films this movie in like a week and a half uh, with Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton. So he had, uh, like most Charles Band films, he saw the poster art in his office and goes, What's that movie about? He goes, it's about a castle and a freak. It says it right there. Other than that, I don't know. And Stuart Gordon's like, I want to make that movie. He goes, okay, fine. You can make that movie. Just make it about a castle and a freak. And after that, you get free reign. So, you know, they got, he got the actress he wanted. He based part of the screenplay on H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's The Outsider, which is a pretty bare-bones story, if you're familiar with it. Um, and just kind of went from there. And it is just creepy and nasty and like such great practical gore and you every time you think this is just going to be another like typical full moon film it just exceeds those expectations and gets you like classic Stuart Gordon moments I'm a fan I love this movie um it's probably I would say in my top five favorite full moon films uh, it, it's so much good fun. Um, Crampton and uh, Combs are just an absolute magical duo together. 
I love them in Reanimator. I love them in this. It, it it's so much fun, and not even bringing the creature into it. And once that happens, yeah, the the film just goes bonkers and off the wall, and I love it. it yeah, it's it's an absolute blast. Uh, I'm glad you picked this one because yeah, it's one of my favorite Full Moon films. Yeah, it's definitely my top three. Uh, I kind of got like some leeway because technically Transfers is an Empire film, so uh, I yeah, I'm a- always I'm always leery about which one's an official Full Moon and which one's Empire. So it's not like I have like a definitive list available, hey. but. Yeah, um, especially like in that 87 to 89 range when they were kind of shifting over who's, which is which, but exactly, yeah. It, it, if we were doing like a full moon family film, then yeah, this is probably top five, maybe top three, like you like you said. Yeah, definitely. This one, uh, I think you know, Puppet Master 3 and Lurking Fear are two of my uh, favorites too, so. Yeah, definitely. That brings me at my number one. Like I said, there's better films on this list, but this one just was the most fun. It's a movie I've gone back to over and over again. I tracked down a German Blu-ray for this one. And then, of course, like right after I did, it got an American Blu-ray like three months later. Uh, It's actually on most of the streaming services right now. I'm pretty sure it's the original R-rated cut, though, that they're streaming. Uh, Actually, I got a, a poster ordered because I love this movie so much. That's 1992 split second. Uh, it's one sci-fi, but it's also mostly horror. It's Rucker Hauer, Kim Cattrall. Like, it's just, it's got the best from them. And it's directed by Tony Malin, who uh, previously done The Burning. So you've got a really competent director uh, written by Gary Scott Thomas. This is actually the first screenplay he tried to sell um, he went on to do Hollow Man and The Fast and the Furious 1 and 2. So he did some really big things afterwards. Stephen Norrington did the special effects. He went on to do uh, Blade and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh, before he finally retired from that. But he did another movie called Death Machine that almost made the list. But I said it was too sci-fi to be on the horror list. So I had to give it up for a split second, though. This one was an HBO original as well. It got a limited theatrical release May and April of 92, uh, which were kind of turbulent times. So it's LA uh, release in April just didn't get any like fanfare at all. And it just kind of went straight to uh, the premium channel. So it was really easy to miss this one. I found a VHS copy at a yard sale when I was 13. And me and my nephews would constantly be stealing this copy back and forth from each other because all of us loved it. And every time they'd come over, it would disappear from my shelf and I'd have to go back over to their house and steal it back again. And, you know, it's just kind of one of those I watched so many times that we would always notice when it was gone. Uh, But it's uh, one thing I love about this, it takes place in 2008. Uh, It's big, uh, like kind of on global warming, which I thought was really cool because, you know, in the 90s, you heard about the hole in the ozone layer and like every cheesy sci-fi movie that came out and most of the big budget ones, but you didn't hear about global warming in 1992. Uh, and this, it's global warming's gotten so bad that London has flooded and there's a plague going on and there's rats all over the city. And now there's this giant ass psychic monster that you never get any clarity on. And I love that because you can just think about it for so long afterwards, just like all these different little strings that they have and you can pull them and the whole movie might unravel or it might just lead you to something amazing. Uh, It's like they just 
left it open as to what this creature is, why it does what it does, but it's very sentient, which I also really dug. It's not just another dumb alien ripoff. Like the thing sets traps, it uses guns, it taunts the police. Like it's really into just like whatever it eats, it takes on part of their memories. So at one point they kind of suggest that maybe it thinks it's the devil because somebody it ate thought he was, or maybe it really is. And they just kind of go in so many different directions to let you have fun with this renegade psychic cop on the rampage for this vicious killer monster. And it's just like you can't get away with that story anymore. It, it just makes it kind of that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And it's just so much of a blast to watch. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Um, I do have the Blu-ray coming in. It uh, hasn't shipped yet. I put it in a package because I was... I had some extra credits left over and I wanted, uh, it was interesting enough and it sounded fun that I wanted it, but um, it hasn't arrived yet. So I haven't seen it. But, uh, yeah. I've, I've got the, um, is it MVD? Yeah. MVD just yeah, did. MVD. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I put it in the box. I don't remember. The, I, it was, a, I, I could have sworn it was zero for a second there, but yeah, it's MVD. Cause I had some credits left over for a sale from them. So I put that in my cart and order hasn't arrived yet. So yeah. It, definitely a you know no brain popcorn kind of movie like it's <laughs> it's an absolute just blast though all right um well i guess that uh means time for uh, my list so um i kind of went all over the place um they're not films that i have um like a strong emotional connection to they're just good films i like that not very many have seen so uh, my number 10 is a film called Mahakal. It's one I haven't heard of. Yeah. Um, so um, for those that haven't, for like you that haven't heard of it, uh, this is a Bollywood nightmare on Elm Street. Nice. So um, it's the exact same premise. It's the exact same setup, just done with a Bollywood twist. Uh, basically, a group of students are uh, experiencing a group, a bunch of um, random nightmares they gradually discover that it's uh, related to this serial killer that their father ended up uh, putting to death several years earlier and has come back from the grave with a uh, razor claw on his hand and uh, a striped sweater that's uh, vaguely copyright free but uh, resembling a specific christmas sweater and uh, they have to try to survive. Um, it, it includes the requisite musical numbers, so don't be put off by that. There's a couple song and dance routines. Uh, it's so much fun. It's so goofy. It's so over the top. Um, I have a blast with it. Um, I've recommended it to several people that have never heard of it, and they keep coming back and saying it, it was so much better than they thought it was going to be. Um, I I probably even go so far as to say it's better than a lot of the sequels to the genuine to the genuine sequels to the Nightmare franchise. So, okay. yeah, um, it's on YouTube. Um, yeah, it's uh, pretty easy to find. But uh, yeah, um, for those that haven't seen it, I always recommend it, and they always rec they always love it. So that's uh, one of my choices. Number nine is uh, another foreign film. Um, this one's from Japan. It's called Jigoku. That one sounds really familiar, but I can't place it. Okay, so it's from 1960 or 61. I, I don't remember the exact date. 
Um, essentially, a uh, guy and his friend are out drinking one night. Um, one has a few too many drinks. The other one has enough to be sober. He's a little bit more lucid, but the other they're both um, really drunk. They end up hitting a girl and they end up killing her. But there's nobody around, so they think they get away scot-free. One year later, the anniversary of the death, the one that hit her, he was the drunker of the two. His his career is taking off. You know, he's successful, prosperous, and all that. The guy that was trying to stop him, the less the less drunk one, he his life is in shambles. He's psychologically depressed, and you know, his life is in ruins. So they meet up as like a I think they meet up for like a class reunion trip or something, but eventually they both end up dying and they both get transported to the Japanese underworld, which is the term Jugoku. It means hell in Japanese. So it turns into this bizarre, just, it, I, I can't even begin to describe it. It's just this over the top bizarre figuration of hell because in Japanese society, hell is a multi-layered system. So you have seven layers of hell. The bottom rung is, you know, murderers and rapists and, you know, just like the absolute scum and villainy. And then the top level of hell is like the general good people. There's no heaven or hell. You just get the one. So it's basically the two of them trying to figure out their way out of hell, essentially. And it just goes in bizarre places. I mean, the visuals in this are just weird and bizarre. So uh, it's supposedly, I've heard it said is like the first gore film, even before Herschel Gordon Lewis. There's a scene where um, one of the torments in one of the lower rungs is that a man gets his skin flayed off. So he's strapped to the ground and these two demons just stick a hook in his, in his skin and then they crank a machine and just the skin just peels straight off of them. Nice. So, yeah. Um, uh, it's actually a Criterion release, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, it's uh, out there for those that can find it. But, yeah, uh, a lot of Asian horror fans tend to miss this one. It, it, it's a really good. Now, a lot of themes about morality and, uh, you know, your self-consciousness, whether, you know, doing the right thing, you know, doing the right thing versus the easy thing kind of a thing. So yeah, um, I, I'm a big fan of it. Number eight is an HP Lovecraft adaptation that a lot of people don't seem to know about. Uh, the Dunwich Horror from 1970. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, 1970. Um, so basically a uh, professor at a uh, university um, ends up coming into contact with this mysterious stranger who claims he needs a special book um, in his possession, which uh, nobody knows the actual meaning of, but supposedly this uh, mysterious stranger does. And he ends up getting into um, cahoots with the, um, the te teacher's best student, and they start falling for each other, but it all turns out to be a ploy in that the stranger needs the book to finish the ritual that will bring demonic gods from the other world into our dimension. So classic Lovecraft kind of a thing there. Um, the girl is like the supposed, you know, sacrifice that you're supposed to, you know, offer up as, you know, you know, offer up to them and, you know, you finish off your spells and rituals and all that. It's a lot of fun. Uh, 
it, it kind of has echoes of like the Corman Poe films from um, earlier in the 19, earlier in the decade. A lot of the Vincent Price stuff, you know, um, House of Usher, um, Mask, you know, Mask of the Red Death and uh, Tomb of Ligia and stuff like that. So it, it's really fun. Um, uh, not necessarily one that I see a lot of Lovecraft fans talk about. You know, Lovecraft adaptations, they always go for, um, uh, they always go for reanimator. You know, you always go for, um, you know, color out of space and stuff like that. So this is one that I really enjoy and one that um, a lot of, a lot of Lovecraft fans would probably dig. So. Yeah. I remember watching that one. It's been, you know, 20 years uh, as a teenager and I, I thought it was a great film. Very uh, classical. Like you were saying, I've had this almost like uh, the old hammer bar kind of feel to it. Right. But I really dug that uh, kind of just very uh, well acted kind of old school, almost gothic horror but approach to the cosmic horror so it's kind of a right. little thing that i think you're right it gets overlooked entirely like if you said it was the hp lovecraft that people have seen i was going somewhere else entirely and i need to draw a blank on that one so yeah <laughs> definitely yeah forgotten easily yeah um my number seven is lovecraft ish but um, I went with Dark Waters from 1994. Um, yeah, it's 93 or 94. I've seen conflicting dates for it, so I don't really know for sure. But um, basically, a woman is uh, told that she is um, she's drawn to this monastery on the this remote island, and uh, it's something involving her father. Like her, her father is uh, connected to the monastery in some capacity as like a financial donor, or uh, he's really he, he's involved with it in some way. But he's recently died, and she needs to come to take over like some aspect of it because she's like the next inheritance. And basically, comes to find out that there's something mysterious going on behind the covenant walls and you know, comes to believe that there's like some demonic presence trying to break through that they're trying to, they're trying to connect. And it it's so good. Uh, I'm a big fan of this. Um, I mean, I'm a huge Lovecraft fan. So, you know, the mysterious old ones coming into our world, you know, secret societies, you know, gothic horror, tons of, you know, a lot of um, Italian gothic, you know, stuff from the 60s you know, brought into the 90s, um, really old school kind of a flair, knots of slimy creature gore thrown in at the end. I, I'm a big fan of this and I'm really, really, I would love to see a lot of people get get into this one because it's a lot of fun and it's something that it, it's gotten overlooked just because it's a 90s film that, you know, and that foreign film from the 90s that it feels a lot more older than what it really is, so. Yeah, uh, my mentor, Brad Carter, he does a lot of work with Severn Films. They just did a uh, blue for that uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was. And the first time I watched it, like, it took me a while, like, because it does have that older feel, and it does kind of have, like, a, it almost has, like, a 70s kind of vibe to it. <coughs> Excuse me. And it took me a minute to kind of get into it. I had to kind of stop and, you know, focus on, you know, I, I need to focus on this movie if I'm going to watch it. And I really dug it. I really want to go back and uh, revisit it uh, 
because I had so much other stuff going on lately. Mm. But <laughs> it was definitely a, a lot of, it, it was an interesting film. I won't say it was a, a super fun film, but it was definitely yeah. one I enjoyed watching. Um, it, it's just very well made all the way around. It looks great effects too. Yeah. Um, like I said, I'm a big fan of that. So um, my number six is uh, one that um, is another Asian film. Um, there's one more on the list just for those that don't know, but it's an Asian film that I don't see a lot of people talking about. It's Mr. Vampire. I know I saw that a long time ago. I think it's the one I'm thinking of anyways. I know I know the name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, this is one that not, not a lot of um, know about. Um, essentially, it concerns a, um, a, a Buddhist priest and his two disciples. They're tasked with carrying uh, the body of this, uh, el this uh, town elderman back to um, his estate to be reburied. Um, there's some kind of land ownership uh, thing that they have to move his body, but so I, I, I don't remember that part. But um, they have to bring his body back to um, their fam to their hometown, and it turns out that the body is actually a vampire. So he gets up and he's you know reanimated and starts wreaking havoc and all that. Now the thing is, is that even though what I said sounds like a horror, this is a flat-out '80s-style Jackie Chan comedy. If you've seen any of like Jackie Chan's '80s-style Hong Kong films. This is a, a horror comedy version of one of his films. Um, the slapstick in this is tremendously funny. There's so many side gags and just, you know, each, well, the, the two assemblants are these bumbling idiots that are always getting into mischief and they always have to have their master bail them out either through physical violence or the threat of physical violence. Um, everybody is a martial artist, is like a 10th degree black belt in martial arts. So there's, you know, jumping all over the walls and spinning kicks and just like, you know, fully fledged energetic choreography. It, it's a blast. I would love to see more people discover this one because it's, it's funny. It's got some horror elements, but it, it's just balls to the wall energy and it's a ton of fun. I feel like I've seen that one, but I'm definitely going to have to revisit regardless because it sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's really good. Um, so, like I said, another, um, I got a couple of a other Asian ones on here. Um, number five is a Japanese film called The Vampire Doll. So, this is a uh, first of a it's a part of a trilogy that's affectionately called the bloodthirsty trilogy and it's uh gothic horror by way of toho studios so imagine the same studio that produced godzilla films doing hammer style gothic horror in japan it it, it it's it sounds like an odd combination, but it works. It's, you know, creaking windows, you know, hallways with billowing curtains, candlelights. It's legitimately gothic horror done in Japan by the studio that created Godzilla. And so um, there's three films. Um, the first one, Vampire Dolls, they're 
the second one is uh, Evil of Dracula, and then the third one is called Lake of Dracula. They're all good. They're not connected in any sense other than they're all directed by the same person and they're all by the same studio. So they're, that's why they're sort of like dubbed the, the Bloodthirsty Trilogy. So they're not like you have to see one to see the other. They're unrelated films, but they're, they're packaged together in a Blu-ray by Arrow. And like, like I said, the, the connection is that they're by the same studio and directed by the same person. But they're all gothic horror, you know, 70s style gothic horror done in Japan. And they're visually amazing. There's a lot of atmosphere in these films. And even though the, the Blu-ray came out, I think last year or the year before, I, there's not a lot that know about them. So I, I, I highly recommend them. They're, they're so much fun. Uh, I definitely recommend them. I, I like Toho and I like Hammer. So I think Toho's take on Hammer would be pretty entertaining. So I definitely yeah. have to check those, all three of those out. Yeah. Um, I, I personally, I, from what I've known, the first one and the third one are considered the best. The second one is still really good, but it's, uh, it's considered like the lessest of the one just because, you know, you got to rank them somehow. And that's always the one that falls at the bottom. It's not that it's considered a weak film, but it's just always, you know, somebody recommends them. They always say one and three are the best. And then two is just at the bottom just because you got to rank them somehow. Right, right. So, um, yeah, definitely check those out. Uh, number four is a, well, it's not um, an Asian horror, but it's uh, an Italian horror film. I went with Torso from 1973. Uh, I, I'm a huge Giallo fan. Um, I, I love Italian horror in general, but I'm a huge, a huge Giallo fan. And this is one of the best ones. Um, essentially, a uh, student is uh, murdered at this prestigious university. And her best friend is stricken. You know, it's like, well, I just ended, you know, that could have been me. You know, I, you know, I was supposed to meet her. She never showed. She ended up dying. It could have been me, you know, like that kind of thing. Like she has like a breakdown and all that. So her teacher suggests that she goes off to have a party with her friends to like, you know, just blow off some steam and relax. And they go to this cabin out in the middle of the countryside just for the weekend and, you know, just let loose and all that. But it turns out the killer followed them there and begins stalking them one by one. Uh, it's um, considered um, a gateway sort of between Giallo and Slasher. Um, it, it, it feels Slasher more than anything, but it's still technically considered a Giallo. The kills in this are brutal. Um, they're some of the bloodiest in the genre. Tons of nudity, great looking women. Um, but the big selling point to this one is the final showdown. And I'm not overstating this when I say that it's a cinema verite showdown where I, I really don't want to spoil this, but uh, basically the killers knocked off everyone except the final girl, but the final girl is injured. She ends up and during the trip, she ends up um, spraining her ankle. So she's hobbling around. She can't move. And she survives the massacre because she's drugged up from the experience. So the killer doesn't know she's there. And the killer begins hacking the bodies apart. And I mean, like hacking the bodies to pieces. So she has to survive without being noticed. 
and you kind of there's hints throughout that the killers notices that she's there but it, she doesn't know that the killer knows so there's just tons of suspense it's so good uh it, it's one of my favorite giallos of all time N- nobody knows about it every the director sergio martino everybody always goes to his first two films um strange advice of mrs ward and all the colors of the dark because those end up having um edwidge Fenech in them and if you know edwidge Fenech, you know one of the reasons why those films are so popular but yeah nobody knows about torso very few have seen it and it's a shame it's one of the best in the genre yeah, uh, this is one I've actually only seen once, and I really wanted to revisit it. Uh, when I did my first Babysitter Massacre book with Enricudo, uh, I uh, wanted it to be very Giallo-inspired. Um, I love the Argento stuff, of course, um, and one of my favorites, it falls in that same category of right between Giallo ending and slasher beginning is Pieces. Uh, so that was like my number one influence on it. So a lot of times before I start a project, because I do write very cinematically and my process is based on filmmaking, I'll just kind of flood myself with material to try to kind of get that right mindset. So I watched all the ones that I love, all the ones that I knew, and then I watched a bunch of new stuff. And Torso was, uh, I think, on Amazon or something. And I went ahead and checked that one out. And I'm like over here making notes. I'm just constantly like stopping and like staring at the screen. Like, should I back that up? What just happened? Like, that was so cool. And yeah, it's definitely one I want to revisit because I did have a great time with that one. I thought it was really well done. Uh, it's just, it's definitely, I say, great, great bloody kills and just fantastic gore. So it's uh, definitely the uh, one of the, I said, the, those early right on the cusp between Giallo. Yeah falling out and slasher starting to take over and those are just such great films they have that giallo tension with that slasher gore and i think that you know a lot of the slashers kind of started to lose that tension and like the mystery element so Mm -hmm. it makes for a very interesting little like five-year period of films that were just the best of both worlds yeah exactly um my number three is uh, one that um, from our earlier conversations about uh, Full Moon, um, this is um, another one of my personal favorites. My number three is The Dead Hate the Living. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, cannot, I cannot express how much I adore this film. Uh, this is a zombie fan's wet dream. Um, it's sort of a meta take on it. Um, so basically, a uh, Maverick director has uh, secured the location for um, his new shoot. He's trying to make his, you know, quote unquote masterpiece, but everybody is completely, you know, just falling at the part at the cracks. There's, you know, tons of dissension, you know, nobody's, you know, he's pushing them to the, you know, beyond their comfort zone and he's trying to, you know, keep everybody in line, but they're off doing their own thing. And, Eventually, they stumble across this weird machine in the basement that has a body inside. And he gets the, the director gets the bright idea, let's do the first zombie film with an actual dead body, not knowing that the body is still alive and ends up turning around, unleashing a zombie virus on the crew 
And all of a sudden now the gates of hell are unleashed and the army of the dead are trying to break through and, you know, kill everybody on this film stage. And uh, I, I cannot express enough how much this, how much fun this movie is. It's just packed to the wall with everything a zombie fan could want. I mean, there's meta references galore. There's tons of just little in jokes and asides. Uh, you know, one character even famously makes the, fam- the phrase "make them die slowly." You know, just it, you know, all of that is just fantastic. And then on top of all that, just fantastic zombie makeup, tons of gore, just balls to the wall fun. And I, if this if it's not in my top three is. I would be shocked if it's not in my top three favorite full moon films of all time. It's so much fun. Yeah, I feel like this is one of the the last great films that Full Moon did before they kind of went into their downward spiral of the you know the mid late you know two thousands. Uh, started you know with the more of the Evil Bong and uh, Ginger Dead Man, which is still fun, but they're just not the same Full Moon anymore. I think this was kind of like one of those last uh great films that they did and one of the lowest budgeted ones too of that time mm-hmm. period so really impressive what they pulled off with that one uh like, yeah it's a lot of fun definitely uh before zombie movies really jumped the shark and uh kind of became every movie that came out so <laughs> it was really nice seeing that you know kind of self-referential uh kind of humor to it yeah all right, uh, my number two is uh, another Italian horror film. I went with The Long Hair of Death from 1964. Um, it's basically, uh, it, you, this is nothing new. Um, you've seen the story done in Italian horror multiple times. Um, it's a uh, woman who's sentenced to death for witchcraft who ushers a curse saying, you know, my vengeance will live forever or, you know, your descendants are next or something like that. Several years later, the mother, the daughter ends up coming of age and the guy who put her, the put the mother to death has taken an interest in her, but the mother spirit indeed comes back from the grave and spooky stuff starts happening. Some of it witchcraft related, some of it not, but uh, you know, several years go by, uh, you know, the mother's uh, dead, but the, the daughter's still alive. She's now in uh, the, she's now in, you know, the possession of the guy that murdered the mother, but uh, the curse comes back to life and uh, it's not known whether or not the, the curse is real or the daughter inherited the witchcraft powers. Um, it's a, uh, it's done by uh, the guy who is uh, mostly well known as uh, the director of the Green Slime. Uh, I, I think it's, um, uh, if I remember correctly, I, I always butcher the last name. Um, I want to say it's Antonio Margariti. I, I, I get them. I get the last name confused. I think that's the the. I think that's the the closest I've heard of it. But it's gothic horror out the atmosphere. Um, Barbara Steele, who most people know from Black Sunday, and um, I, I think she was also in a film called Horror Castle, 
that was like a public domain film for many years and just it just sort of like made the rounds as like you know 50 films you know on like a box set kind of a dvd kind of a thing um she's in this she plays the two roles and it's really fun um like i said gothic atmosphere lots of you know witchcraft and curses and you know supernatural happenings Uh, it it, it's a shame that this one kind of just slipped through the cracks because it's a fantastic film maybe you know not the most original but just it's a lot of fun yeah, this is one I hadn't heard of. I definitely need to check that one out. Uh, so I love the Italian stuff. So I, there's not really a, a lot of uh, great gothic horror coming out now. So it's like nice to revisit the older stuff. So yeah, I'll have to look up. And then uh, my number one, um, I'm sure very few have heard of this one. Um, another Asian film, but this is just, uh, this is a, spe- a special film for me. It is the Boxer's Omen. I missed that one. Yeah, um, I, I very few have. Um, so essentially, um, I'll try to keep this a spoiler. I'll try to keep this brief because there's a lot going on, but it's worth it. So uh, the main story is uh, this small-time hoodlum. His brother is a uh, professional boxer. He ends up winning the match. He ends up winning this uh, title match, but the loser is so incensed that he cripples them. He cripples them after the match. And so the brother, the the hoodlum vows revenge and travels to Thailand to issue a challenge, to, a rematch for his family's honor. But he ends up coming across this order of monks who believe that the hoodlum is the reincarnated celestial twin brother of the head monk of their order who died years earlier in battle with the rival wizard of, an, of, of, a, sec, of a separate religious order that's trying to overthrow the world and need him to complete the religious training to become a monk for them in order to continue the fight. And that's the first 20 minutes. <laughs> no, seriously, that's the first 20 minutes of the film. So this is, um, it's, a, it's a Hong Kong black magic movie. So you get um, spells, potions, um, vomiting galore, tons of body horror i mean there's scene where a person ends up uh, developing blisters on their body the size of their head and it looks like a werewolf transformation where just like his skin is festering and boiling and all of a sudden he just explodes into this viscera of gore there's scenes where i'm not joking there's he's the monk is in he's in this uh, special order and he ends up turning the spell that makes him look like this ceremonial vase with writing all over his body and he uses it to ward off this attack by vicious bats that are trying to circle around and kill him and you know the bats just break away and explode into flames and all of a sudden you see like this swarm of crocodile skulls appear out of nowhere and just try to grab at him and he has to use his powers to evade the, you know, these giant crocodile skulls that just appeared out of nowhere. And it's just an absolute mind mind trip. I mean, the visuals in this thing are just absolutely amazing, but nobody knows about it. And I, I, I cannot express my love for this film enough. It is one of the best I've ever seen. It's one of my all-time favorite films, and I would love more people to know about this. I've shared it with a few, and 
they absolutely adore this movie. And my only hope, and I, 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 I really hope this comes to fruition, is that when Arrow announced their partnership with the Shaw Brothers, because that's the studio that did this. This is the same studio that produced all those 70s and 80s, you know, kung fu flicks. <laughs> They ended up making this, and I only hope that when this film gets the, if if this film is released by Arrow, I really hope this film explodes because it is, it is amazing. Uh, I I love this film. Yeah, it's definitely one of my happy tracks. Yeah, it's not awesome. Uh, and I love Shaw Brothers, so I definitely like our yeah. Chinese ninjas and Kid with the Golden Arm. And- yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I'm a huge fan of those as well. So yeah. Um, yeah, I've shared this with a few people who've been curious about it because I've talked about it before on other shows and they want me to talk about it with them and it blows their mind every time it, I, I've showed it to them. So yeah, this is this is a this is a big one. I, I'm a huge fan of this one. So um, with that, uh, before we go, is there uh, any final parting um, honorable mentions? Just uh, throw their names out. There was a bunch that I had on my list. I, I kind of keep whittling it down, whittling it down. Uh, said uh, Death Machine with Brad Dorif. Uh, it's also the uh, film debut of Rachel Wise in a cameo, film debut of Richard Brake in a starring role. So it's nice seeing you know this guy that you know I thought was amazing back in I think '96 when it came out, and you know he's getting this you know huge you know starring roles now with like Bingo Held so bad it's good kind of way. It's like got some great twists in there and things you just don't see coming. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's just so many good ones. This is a uh, Stake Land and uh, Mulberry Street, both with uh, Nick Demisi are both really good. I think uh, Mulberry Street's uh, one of my preferred zombie movies because it goes kind of in a whole other direction with uh, everything, how it comes about, how they look, just everything is so unique in that one. Almost on my list too is uh, Bad Moon, 1996. Um, that has always been one of my favorite werewolf movies and nobody had ever heard of it. And then suddenly like five, six years ago, it started popping up everywhere. Like everybody's like best werewolf movies. And that's in the top five almost every single time. So uh, it's like, I was trying to get the love it deserves. So I kind of cut that one out, but so there's just so many great films that just don't get any traction. And one, two, uh, you got me thinking about you mentioned the Asian horror films is uh Ryohei Kitamira's versus like that one is just so out there it's so much fun it's evil dead with samurai swords and zombies and just all kinds of action-packed sequences but monsters and it's uh, it's just its own little thing and I love that one nice yeah um Okay, yeah. Uh, for my list, um, I was like you. I had Blood Moon. I had, I had Bad Moon. Um, like you said, uh, a lot more people are talking about it. Um, I also, in, like I said, um, I had Session 9, just because, um, like we were saying earlier, um, I also had um, a creature feature called Splinter. Uh, I know a lot of people that like it, that have seen it, but um, again, one that I don't think is uh, as much beloved as it should be. And um, the last one I had is a uh, another Japanese uh, splatter film. Um, I, not that the title again it gives it away, but uh, Tokyo Gore Police. Uh, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, 
I mean, the title should give it away what kind of a film this is. But um, yeah, uh, at the risk of uh, being here all night, just running, rounding off uh, titles, I think that uh, that'll wrap us up. So um, before we go, uh, go ahead and uh, let everybody know about your work, where they can find you and, uh, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I'm, I have an author page on Facebook, uh, it's David O'Hanlon Author. Um, but also you can reach out to me on just my regular Facebook. I don't distinguish the two too often. Um, but as I do mention the writing stuff on both sides, uh, but you know, my personal page has a little bit more of my, you know, kids and stuff like that, but I have absolutely, you know, no problem with reaching out both hands there. Uh, and it's the best way to keep up with everything. I do have Instagram just lately. It's been so crazy. I don't have time for all the hashtags, uh, to really get the post to go around where I need them to, but uh, find us there to Amazon. Uh, I did adaption of 1972's Horror Express. If you're looking for something a little more family friendly, that's probably your best choice. Other than that, I've been doing the Babysitter Massacre book series. Uh, we have three books out now, Daddy's Little Killer, Family Splatters, and Camp Carnage. And the fourth book, Murder Cove, should be out hopefully by New Year's. Um, it's with our editor. We've got the title or the cover art back recently. It looks fantastic. Uh, it's my favorite cover so far, in fact, and they all look pretty good. So uh, definitely each one's kind of uh, a throwback to a different kind of slasher film. The first one, I kind of went more towards Giallo. The second one, I took some uh, hints from New French Extremity, like High Tension and Inside, which are two of my favorites. Um, the third one, I went with straight up 80s kind of camp slasher. And this new one that's coming out, Murder Cove, is kind of more of a supernatural vibe, kind of Final Destination at times. So uh like i say every time it's a little bit different uh so it's always about a babysitter in peril but you never know what that peril is going to be so it's always something for somebody and they're standalone novels so you don't have to read them all you just get a little bit more enjoyment if you do because there are little like easter eggs and throwbacks but uh we got those going full steam now i've got an anthology coming out hopefully in the next two weeks uh that features myself and 13 other artists, including C. Courtney Joyner, the screenwriter of Puppet Master 3. Um, and then we have six or seven more books lined up for next year, uh, ranging from anthologies to my own stuff, plus the Babysitter Massacres. And I'm officially doing it for the Dolls of Horror podcast. Nice. All right. Um, yeah, um, we'll definitely uh, share your links in the uh, show notes below for uh, you to catch all that. So, uh uh, yeah, uh, this has uh, been a fun episode. Thank you so much for joining in and we will see you next time.